2: You know, if you think about it, I think we can all agree that we live in a fallen, sin-tarnished world, replete with all the effects that that has had on man's fallen condition, one, by the way, of our own doing, Uh, that, of course, uh, that impact on our relationships, first between mankind and his creator, second between mankind and his neighbor. Now, it's the power of the gospel to forgive and restore on the vertical plane has the effect that it has in restoring and reconciling our relationship with God, that reconciliation between Creator and creation. Should not that same restorative power take place in relationships extending across the horizontal plane? Let's talk about that. Lisa Sharon Harper joins us She's Chief Church Engagement Officer with Sojourners, the author of a new book called The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Lisa, great to have you on the program.
3: Thanks so much, Craig. It's great to be here.
2: This is a point that perhaps all of us need to be pondering. Uh, We sometimes want to limit God in our thinking, in seeing the gospel as the ability to be forgiven and reconciled. and walk and restore relationship between creation and creator. And while all of that is true and all of that is predominant and and critical and first and foremost, the story really of reconciliation behind the power of the gospel doesn't end there, does it?
3: Well, you're exactly right. I mean, I think for myself, I I was... I became a Christian and walked down the aisle. I like to say I jumped the broom with Jesus in nineteen eighty three, August twenty first of nineteen eighty three. Actually my birthday with Jesus is coming up pretty soon quite a it sure <laughs> is, isn't and it? I almost forgot that. Um but you know, I, I I came to faith and I was told pretty quickly, you know, that this is this is really about my relationship with God and that's it. And I took a journey it's about 13 years ago, um, called the Pilgrimage for Reconciliation. And on that pilgrimage, we went across 10 states in the in the South, the Northern South, and the Deep South, asking the question the whole way as we retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the African experience and the um, on this land from slavery through civil rights. We were asking, what does the gospel have to say to this? And I had to really face a hard truth when I got to the end. I realized that. If I were to share my understanding of the gospel with my ancestors, it wouldn't make them jump for joy. I don't think they would have received it as good news. My ancestors who walked the trail of tears, who, according to family oral tradition, and who slaved in South Carolina, if I went up to them and I said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, (laughs) but you are sinful and therefore separated from God, all you need to do is pray this prayer because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and then you'll get to go to heaven. Would that make them jump up and down? I had to really admit the reality of no, it would not. And so that's what propelled me on a 13-year journey, really, in Genesis, the book of Genesis, and then all the way through the scripture to find what is, how does Jesus actually communicate the gospel. Cuz I think it's, at, it's, at the
2: end of the day that that sense of Realization that quickening of man's separation from God and sin, and the need for um, uh, spilled blood for for forgiveness and reconciliation, is something that we, while we can explain it, it really can only be quickened to one's heart through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, oftentimes, I think we as the church sort of leave it there. It's sort of the one and done. And once you've you, you've accomplished that, uh, meaning that you've you've made that surrender, you've asked for forgiveness, you've given your life over to God, God is therefore through the power of the work of Christ's sacrifice on the cross forgiven us and and that reconciliation process begins and, and that's wonderful and beautiful and, and all part of God's design to be sure but God wants so much more for us, doesn't he? And that the notion of his creation living in harmony together was certainly a part of the original plan until mankind managed to mess things up there in the Garden of Eden but, but right. God wanted for us to walk in harmony. Disunity and the turmoil that we're living in today, while certainly as a, a end product of man's fallen condition, is not God's ideal for us.
3: Well, that, that's exactly right. And actually, I have to say, this was really critical in my research. Was What I found was that at the end of Genesis 1, when God looks around at creation and says, this is very good, that that word good, tov, is really kind of a clincher because Um, When you open up that word, you begin to open up the text. That word, Tav, is not necessarily referring to the things themselves. It's not necessarily saying, God is saying, ooh, that's a good son I just made, or ooh, that's a really great platypus, or that's a great human being. No, instead what it's saying, goodness, according to the Hebrews, existed between things. But our understanding of perfection, which is really a Greek concept, exists in the thing. So when we think of what perfection as God would, um, would, would have it, perfection as we've been taught through the Greeks actually is about us becoming perfect, or God's creation being perfect, and they're, you know, and then defiled. But actually, the way the Hebrews thought of it was actually that the relationships were perfect. There was an overflowing, forceful, vehement goodness in the relationship between humanity and God, and also in the relationship between men and women and humanity, and the rest of creation, and all of God's creation, and the systems that govern us, that the way things worked there was only blessing, not cursing in the beginning. So when we look at what would God have for us now, what does it look like to be redeemed, it's not only about our relationship with God, though that is absolutely there, but the reality is, is that when our relationship with God is well, then we live in a web of relationships. Relationships that then become well as well. So God um, looks at perfection or very goodness and says, if it's going to be very good, it has to be very
2: good for all, not just some. So do we shortchange God? Do we sell him short in the sense that we tend to... And while this might seem to be sort of unique to the um, uh, evangelical uh, Protestant believer, I think there's plenty of this uh, um, responsibility to go around, uh, no matter what your particular uh, persuasion might be within uh, the, 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 the large arch of Christendom. But do we sell God short by simply and singularly focusing on the power of Jesus Christ, in his work on the cross, to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation only on the vertical plane and somehow act as if uh, that same power, the ability to forgive and, and experience reconciliation um, and renewed right relationship is somehow not possible or we shouldn't bother with, ourse- with uh, doing or looking at that on the, on the horizontal plane?
3: Well, you know, that's a great question. I would actually say that the way that we sell ourselves short is by lifting Jesus outside of his context and outside of the context of the whole rest of the scripture because jesus comes to us was born into a long story a story written by many authors that spans millennia and goes beyond him as well as you know through the cross and the resurrection and the first church and the teachings of paul and so when we take jesus outside of his own context, meaning he was born in the context of a colonized, imperialized nation, the Jews, in the context of the Roman Empire. Just a few years before his birth, the Roman Empire had um, squashed a possible insurrection in Galilee, where there were 2,000 people cru- crucified at one in one day, crucified, 500 crucified after that every single day. By another general who came through. The soldiers got so bored in their crucifixions that they began to place the bodies in different positions to humor themselves. That was the context that Jesus was born into. And so when, when Mary um, sings in Magnificat, when Mary sings that the, the low will be brought high and the high will be brought down low. And when Jesus says in Luke 4, I have come and I am, I've been anointed to preach good news not to the middle class, not to those who have, but actually to the poor, to the oppressed, There were actually poor people in that room. There were actually oppressed. The whole context was a a context of oppressed people. So I think that that's one of the things that we do ourselves a disservice. We don't realize the ethical, the here and now implications of the gospel, of the scripture, when we lift Jesus outside of his context.
2: Let's pause on that point. We'll come back to more of our conversation after a brief update on traffic. If you've tuned in and been late, shame on you. No, if you've tuned in a bit late, visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper, author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. I think today's some conversation to help better understand how God would have us look at these questions, look at these problems, and what kind of an answer that the gospel can bring to them in terms of realizing not just uh, God's passion for reconciliation unto us, but then to see that same reconciliation play out on the horizontal between his creation as well. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper as this edition of Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: Welcome back to the conversation here this edition of Lifeline. Our visit with Lisa Sharon Harper. Her new book, by the way, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly published by Waterbrook and Multnomah Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. It's part of the issue here, Sharon, the fact that perhaps in our quest to understand Reconciliation between creation, creator, and seeing the the need or or comprehending the transformative power of salvation that it hasn't gone far enough. And by that I mean um, salvation is the beginning point. Then there is this matter of sanctification. So we recognize sin, the impact of sin. We then, through the power of Christ's blood, become saved, That salvation then takes us to that long-term process in preparation of moving from um, the kingdom here on earth to the the, the kingdom up in heaven with the big capital K, and that, of course, is called this matter of sanctification. I would imagine that if, if mankind were really truly embracing sanctification and not just the concept of fire insurance, that the changing of our heart in relationship to God would also change our heart in relationship to each other, and therefore the turmoil that we're seeing even right now as we speak would, would perhaps look very differently wouldn't it?
3: I'll tell you what I'm going to tell you a story. I was I was writing Genesis the uh, chapter 2 of the book on a glimpse of Shalom and I was writing and, and researching actually Genesis 1 and something I had this huge aha moment that led me really to a time of worship as I was writing and actually weeping I was weeping and worshiping because I realized that, um, many scholars now believe that they understand that Genesis as a book was actually written by several different sets of authors that um, one of those sets of authors for was, was a company of priests these priests were leaving they were exiting the Babylonian exile as such that you know as so I've heard that I've heard that term before about you know they were exiled okay they didn't get to live where they wanted to live but it's much more than that they went through war sons died mothers died husbands brothers died then they were taken away from their land made to live in babylon in a place that was not their own in that land they were taught the worldview of the Babylonians. The Babylonians told them that they were created to be slaves. That was the Babylonian worldview. All humanity was created to be enslaved by the gods, slaves to the gods. They were also told that they were not made in the image of God. Only the royalty was made in the image of God. So when I was studying Genesis 1, and I get to the, uh, to the beginning of day 6, and they say that these priests write, and God said, let all humankind be made in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth. I, I, it hit me. I was like, this is revolutionary for them because they had just spent 70 years in oppression. And then it hit me. Wait a minute. I've never heard that the writers of Genesis 1, not 2, but Genesis 1, they were coming out of an oppressed context. They were, they, were, they were writing in the context of thinking through and trying to figure out how do they see their own creation story in light of what they've been told about who they are by their oppressors. And I think that that's actually really truly one of the biggest issues, Craig, is that when we study the Scripture... When we look at and try to put together theologies that work for us, we are not doing it from the same social location, from the same uh, uh, experience as those who wrote the Scripture in the first place. So what we tend to do is we tend to divorce it from its context. And then, you know, we jump to application and jump to interpretation before we even understand what the original writers might have been thinking in the
2: first Sure, time. and that's, that's the simplest definition of proof texting. Exactly. Uh, come up with a conclusion and then we'll find a piece of scripture that's going to support your conclusion. <laughs>
3: exactly. And, and check this out, Craig. I mean, imagine the power of, of these people having been enslaved for 70 years turning around and saying, God said, let all humanity have. Dominion. And that word dominion, it's been really misunderstood. It actually means stewardship. It means, in fact, in Genesis 2, you have picture of dominion that is the till and keep when the humans are placed in the garden and said till and keep this. Those words, till and keep, mean serve and protect. So dominion, to exercise dominion is to serve and protect. And all humanity has been given that that call and that capacity by God. But the problem for us is that we live in a world where we have laws and systems and structures that have told us a lie.
2: So the issue here then is not just a matter of a distorted view of how we see ourselves, uh, or, or others rather, but also how we see ourselves.
3: Right. That's exactly right. We, 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 have, we have not understood that God cares about how we exercise power here on earth and how we interact with each other in relationship to power. Because I think that one of the, the key, the, the, the big question that they were trying to ask in Genesis 1 was after having been oppressed for 70 years, how now shall we rule as we enter into the new rule in the temple? And so the question of the image of God is key then, because there's some implications there. All humanity is made in the image of God, so everybody is a representative figure of God. Everybody is called with the capacity to exercise dominion. And if we govern in a way that squashes the capacity of any individual or people group to exercise dominion, then we are also squashing the image of God on earth.
2: Well, not only that, but we're also um, denigrating the way they see God, because their perception is that God thinks less of them, that all of a sudden we've set up second and third class citizens, and now all of a sudden there's an elite that's uh, going to get the bigger mansions in heaven, and uh, then there's a second and third class citizens that uh, are not so. And all of a sudden then, I think that that diminished viewpoint of, of ourself is a natural flow out of of a, a taken out of context understanding of how God sees us.
3: Yes, and, you know, think of it this way also. When you look at the beginning of Luke, Luke 1, Luke actually sets it up. Luke says, you know, in the days of Herod, in the days of King Herod. Well, that's significant. He's setting up the context. The context is the context of empire. It's the context of an oppressed people. It's the context of, of a very corrupt king um, uh, or proxy king for Caesar. And it's, a, it's the uh, context of of the Roman Empire which had just um done 2000 uh, uh crucifixions and 500 every day after that just a few years before this the right, the the period when this text place takes place so that's the context that Luke is setting up in the beginning it's actually and then Jesus is born and and in Mark we see Jesus say repent and believe the ki- the, the kingdom of God is at hand the kingdom, believe the gospel, believe the good news. I believe that when Jesus came, what he was doing was he was confronting the kingdoms of men that crushed the image of God. And Jesus' work was to create um, flourishing in the image of God, in the people, starting with the Jews and working his way out. And that flourishing requires that we have relationship with God. But it also it, it requires relationship with each other, that that blesses and does not curse the image of God in each other.
2: And we certainly know that it's possible. I mean, if you look at the ragtag group of the 12 that he had around him, I mean, there's plenty of of cause uh, for, for none of the individuals to really get along, particularly when you consider the fact that you've got... Multiple layers of multiple classes of individuals. You've got tax collectors, and you have physicians, and you have thinkers, and you have fishermen. So you've got everything from the blue-collar worker to the white-collar worker to those that are high up in government to those that uh, eschew anything involving government, thinking it's just a dirty place to be, to be. And yet you manage to find all of these men coming together in absolute harmony around the central figure of Jesus Christ himself. So we know that the sense of reconciliation on the horizontal plane is modeled successfully so. Uh, sure, I'm sure they had their moments. I mean, we, we certainly even see evidence, evidence of that in Scripture. But overall, the the capacity to see reconciliation uh, and, and and balanced relationship take place along the horizontal is modeled in the apostles. And so why not then superimpose um, that paradigm on where we're at today? We'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. We're visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper. The book is called A Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. And we're going to dig down a bit deeper into the application of the power of the gospel and its influence on things such as the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, uh, all of significant um, changes that took place in American society 40 years ago now, and what seems to be a troubling absent absence of that impact today, and whether or not this is in part. Uh, uh, can can better explain the challenges that we're facing and what the road out may be. We'll get to that part of the conversation as Lifeline continues after this.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: All right, back to our conversation. Lisa Sharon Harper with us. The very good gospel, how everything wrong can be made right. Uh, Sharon, you've got a lot of expertise in this arena. Uh, listeners may not know that one time you served as a ministry director of a racial reconciliation uh, aspect of a ministry in greater Los Angeles. And, and you've touched on a little bit of that um, in our conversation today. But I have to wonder, there seems to be a big distinction between what we're seeing happening in our country today, uh, the movement afoot to try and, and get it addressed at, at multiple layers, And the movement that we saw leading the charge, so to speak, back in the 50s and 60s, and that was the church, was absolutely forefront. Everybody thinks of or maybe has learned in school about Dr. Martin Luther King. They forget that he is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and that it was the church that was largely the spearhead of that movement that eventually brought about things like the end of Jim Crow laws down in the southern states and the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. I'm just wondering if in this current battle enjoined as we talk about uh, police departments, what's happening uh, with the minority communities and whatnot in relationship to uh, community policing, if, if maybe the one thing that seems to be absent from the forefront of this, and that is the church.
3: Well, let me just say the church is not absent. The church, there are many people actually who are deeply, deeply committed leaders in the church who are very much uh, pastoring and chaplaining the movement right now. But let's take a step back, and I just want to um, share how all of this is all connected. Um, and, and it's funny because I kind of have to go back to, to the Roman times, to, to Plato. Plato was the first person in Western civilization that I could find that actually said the word race and said it. Um, in terms of defining how race would operate within the context of a society. When he wrote The Republic in 30, 360 B.C., and in The Republic 360 B.C., what he said was, different humans are made of different races, and those races are determined by the metals that the human is made out of. There are gold people, silver people, copper and iron, People. Each of those different sets of people actually serve the, the republic in a different way. So then flash forward to about 1453 A.D., and you get the Pope at that point um, putting forward the Doctrine of Discovery. So race, we know, um, uh, according to Plato, was supposed to define how society worked, how you structure society at what it, its most basic core. Then the Pope actually decides that if so an explorer comes to him and says, Yo 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 Pope, you know, I'm gonna go exploring and I need your blessing and the Pope says, Paga, you got my blessing. But even will one up you, if you come across some land that doesn't have a lot of concrete and doesn't have a lot of stone, go ahead and claim it for the kingdom. Go ahead and claim it for the throne because that means they're not civilized and that means they don't have a right to actually exercise dominion on that land. So where we get that, So what that does is it starts to create a bifurcation in those who are fully made in the image of God and those who are not. And that's the beginning of, of the religious um, uh, uh, a nod to the construct of race. Then throughout American history, you will you have Linnaeus, the botanist who puts together a, a literal taxonomy of human value with white Europeans on the, on the top. And then uh, Asians, and then um, red. He called them red um, Americanus, the Native Americans, and then black um, Africanus on the bottom. And that is that's when we start to see different races. Um, in different ways. And then we started to codify those races into different stations of American society around the 1660s, 1680s, all the way up to the Three-Fifths Compromise that said, legally speaking, black people are only three-fifths of a human being. Then in 1790, we declared with the Immigration Act of 1790 that only white people would be able to exercise dominion in America. And that's when we said they would be the only ones who could become naturalized citizens. So from that point forward, we have had a struggle in America on this land of people who are oppressed, Struggling to have the full image of God, the full call, the full capacity that God created with them with to exercise dominion, realized and protected by law. That was the struggle of the civil rights movement.
2: And, of course, the irony is you read the Declaration of Independence and that preamble. Right. Codifies right. that we hold these truths to be self-evident, and it's interesting that it doesn't say we we have determined, we have established, we have decided. No, it says we hold. That gives right. credence to the notion that these truths are not truths that we created ourselves but rather we're acknowledging have been established by some other entity and certainly from a biblical perspective I think we would say that that comes from God that's and yet exactly even right. from then we have managed to you know make the make the bold pronouncement and statement and then run in the opposite direction ever since
3: yes that's exactly right and so what you get is you get the civil war where people literally had to die and bleed so that some could actually have in the image of God and then realize and culture Cultivated and protected, and then you get Jim Crow that pushed that back, and then you get the Civil Rights Movement that, that again fought to have the image of God protected, realized, and cultivated in, in the same people and others who were then being oppressed. Now, the, the difference between the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Lives Matter Movement, or the current movement of black struggle, is that the Civil Rights Movement was fighting specifically a very specific thing called segregation in the South. And that very specific thing, it hit the entire cross-section of the black community. I mean, it hit Grandmom, it hit Bebe, it hit hit Uncle Joe, everybody. And what's the best institution, then, to address something that hits across the entire cross-section of society? It is the church. But the thing is, today... The people who were experiencing the brunt, the, the, the sharpest point of the, of the spear in terms of um, today's uh, uh, injustice with regard to mass incarceration and police brutality, the people who are experiencing it the most are the young people. They're the folks in the streets, and they're not church. And so, of course, the movement would rise up from that space. And of course they would lead it because they understand the injustice the most because they're the ones experiencing it. So it's really the job. It's the role of the church to then come alongside to add the moral heft of our moral authority and to stand with them and to say yes. We are only calling on the image of God to be fully honored in every single human being, including Michael Brown, including Tamir Rice, including Eric Garner, including uh, Philando Castile, including Alton Sterling, and the list goes on.
2: You know, the sad thing is that you look at the impact uh, of illicit drug use in America. And, and all the crime and everything that attends to that and the destruction of marriages and lives and relationships. And yet, as you point out, the impact, it's kind of a twofold one. It's sort of a, a, a double whammy in that if you are doing cocaine in its powdered form, you're likely right. somebody who has a bank, an, a bank account or a contact list strong enough that you're going to be able to get out of it. You're going to have slap on the wrist. The judge is going to say, okay, 90 days probation and uh, write a big check to some foundation. And, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll consider it one and done. And yet if you are in a minority class that doesn't use the powdered form, but uses the crack cocaine form, oh, all of a sudden now you've got to do 90 years in jail.
3: That's exactly right. And, I mean and more than that,'ve actually now it's actually been proven that when Nixon declared the war on drugs back in 19, in the early 1970s, I believe it was 1972, he said, we're going to do a war on drugs. Well, now we actually have him on tape saying that this was actually that that was a dog whistle, that was buzzword, that was a way post civil rights act to control and confine black black communities. Because if they really were gonna have a war on drugs, then they would have actually gone down into the South and they would have they would have focused on, on on Southern women because Southern women actually had the highest rates of drug abuse all the way from antebellum the antebellum south up to up to present because of the way that they had to suffer through the powerlessness that they experienced watching their husbands and and their brothers go and um and well let's just say it and and rape their quote unquote property black women and men quite honestly um through on on slave plantations and so those women anesthetized themselves by by drugging themselves, but of course that's not where we focused. Instead, they focused policing on black communities. And whenever you focus policing anywhere, that's where that's going to be the
2: bulk of who you get. Well even we see the the impact of things like uh, Johnson's Great Society that created a welfare state that's that's managed to have the same negative impact that while on the surface, oh, it sounds great, we got a we got a war on poverty and we got a war on drugs, and they don't realize in every war there are casualties and there's also friendly fire that ends up taking out the wrong people. The very people that you're supposed to be protecting and supposed to be on the friendly side end up becoming victims as well a fascinating read and i sure appreciate the time lisa from you to uh, share with us some of your thoughts and insights and again more found inside the pages of the very good gospel how everything wrong can be made right newly released by multnomah press and again you'll find it at bookstores throughout the bay area as well as through amazon.com our thanks to lisa sharon harper for being with us on this segment of lifeline
1: and now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
2: We are reminded that prayer is the key and faith unlocks the door. From that wonderful hymn of the 1970s, wasn't it? Um, Trying to think who sang that. I can picture him right now. Roger, he'll come to me. It's a sign of old age. Roger something or other. Prayer is the key to heaven. Sometimes you get a little overwhelmed, though, especially if you have a reputation for being a bit of a prayer warrior and you enjoy communing with God. And yet, boy, how do you do it? I don't mean how do you pray. What I mean is how can you have a sense? When you say to somebody, for example, I'll be praying for you. Are you good on the follow through? Are you able to keep track of the execution on that? I know I I have to make a list. If I don't make a list, inevitably, and I try to do it strictly from top of mind, uh, you run into somebody and they say, gee, uh, my son-in-law is dealing with cancer. Oh, I'll be sure and pray. I'll add them to my prayer list. And then a day or two goes by and you forget about it. And then six weeks later, you run into them somewhere at the grocery store And they say, gee, my son-in-law is doing much better. Thank you for praying. And you go, oh my goodness, I had completely forgotten. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. And yet, is there a practical way in which you can pray for friends family community well my next guest says absolutely yes simply learn to pray a to z a practical guide to pray for your community amelia rhodes joins us and amelia what a brilliant book uh when i first saw this come across my desk i thought oh another book on how to pray well there's plenty of those out there but then i started thumbing through and went oh wait a minute this is a whole new idea
4: Thank you. Yeah, that, um, that's kind of how I felt. We don't need another book on how to pray. We need something that will actually help us to pray, because I'm much like you described. That has been my struggle, too, saying I would pray for people and then weeks later realizing, wow, I only prayed once, maybe twice, and just feeling this conviction that I needed to follow through and be faithful long term.
2: And and as we talk about a, a lending the sense of of organization i know some people might shudder a little bit and think oh my goodness I have to get an excel, excel spreadsheet going now right, <laughs> right. i got to go buy a laptop so i have it handy <laughs> Yeah, uh, I I know that I need
4: simple things that help me, and that's how Pray A to Z started for me, was just out of my own prayer life, feeling very overwhelmed and convicted of, you know, running into people later and remembering, oh, I I said I was going to pray long-term. And uh, so I just came up with this very simple way, and it started out, you know, note cards, three-by-five cards, and it grew into a book. I never would have dreamt I would write a book on prayer because I felt like I was the least qualified person to do that.
2: As you've approached this, you're you're taking it very um, topical in a sense, and I guess it's true that people tend to, at least my life experiences, tend to fit in, you know, not, not, not neat, clean pigeonholes, but it tends to be, for example, there's a couple of people on my prayer list right now that are dealing with cancer. Mm-hmm. So they're in the cancer category, mm-hmm. and then it seems perennially there is somebody that I know that's got a son or a daughter or a grandson or a grandchild that's kind of wandered away from the Lord and... Mm-hmm. and And uh, you know, maybe they've had a run-in with the law and things of that sort. So it seems as if um, the older we get, the health concerns, of course, tend to pile up. But it seems as if there are certain perennial categories that 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 tend to be kind of repetitive. The names may change, but the needs. Are kind of the same. Does that make sense?
4: It does, yeah, and that's how it started for me. It was after taking several phone calls and emails from friends all in one day, big heavy requests, adoptions that weren't going well, cancer diagnosis. Um, a marriage that was falling apart. When I realized, you know, this is heavy and overwhelming, and I asked God to help me be more faithful in my prayer life, and that was what I—the conclusion I came to—that so many people are struggling with the same types of things. What if I were to pray by category, and maybe take one or two per day? And so that's how A became adoptions, and B became bullying, and then we expanded, doing several topics per letter. And I found it—I um, kept the topics broad enough so that, yes, under cancer, you will remember your friends, their family members, their caregivers, their hospital staff caring for them, really just very broadly covering all of those struggling with the various topic.
2: And uh, let's see, 26 letters in the alphabet that kind of takes us through um, A to Z literally over the course of a month.
4: Right, right. And I ended up starting with one topic per letter, and then I ended up expanding it to five. So there are 150 different prayers and topics in the book, and um, two for each letter are actually prayers of praise.
2: Yeah, I noticed that. And and was it intentional that you included that in there because you know so often we think about uh, you know the, the scripture talks about going to and bringing to the Lord our prayers and supplications and it tends to usually be a laundry list of heavenly father I need so and so needs the other one <laughs> needs and it's it's typically uh, all very one-way communication in that sense. Uh mm-hmm. you know we could almost uh, if 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 heaven had an email address <laughs> we would we would do that and just say, you know, dear god, here's my list. Uh, Get right. back to me when it, when you've answered all those requests. Right. You're, you're suggesting a dynamic here that that really helps to not only give us a better sense of discipline about our prayer, but also helps to enrich our relationship with God.
4: Absolutely, because as I prayed, you know, and I was we're looking at you know very heavy topics that we're all facing in our communities. We've mentioned cancer, but then like praying for the homeless and those who are serving them, um, zero prejudice, our lawmakers all of those big things happening in our communities, it can be very heavy. And I found myself, even in prayer, just feeling just this darkness and feeling overwhelmed. But when I began to praise God and recognizing who it is that I'm talking to, it really lightens the load because we remember that every need we have is met in who He is. And it was very exciting as I wrote it. So, for example, like C was cancer and caregivers and then praising God that he's the comforter. How very often, you know, these prayers of praise match up with the needs and recognizing, yes, we have these hard and heavy things that remember he's almighty. He's the comforter. He's our helper.
2: There's also another dynamic to this that fascinates me. And I and I think it's one, you know, a, a, some people that kind of approach prayer casually uh, do it. They know they need to do it. They have a sense that it moves the hand of God. So they're obedient in that fashion. But there's lacking in sense of organization. It's easy to rack up the list of all the prayer needs mm-hmm. and then forget about the times. And they are frequent when God answers prayer. And I'm wondering if in this fashion in in giving a greater sense of organization to uh, how you pray and remembering to, to remember all the needs that are brought forward, is it also a, a tool in helping you keep track of, wow, when God answers prayer, let's make note of that too and right. also give thanks to the Lord in acknowledging the fact that here's another case where He's answered prayer.
4: Absolutely. With, with each topic, I started out with a scripture because I, I really believe in starting with God's Word. What does God say about this topic in this particular? issue and then in the prayer prompt just a couple sentences you know remembering all of the people who are going through this and then many times i prompted people you know think about the times where god has moved in your life in this area and give thanks for that and then through the prayers um, to not only think about the current situations but situations in past praising god for his faithfulness and how he has worked in these areas
2: and I think a lot of that helps to, to uh, not only give us a greater sense of discipline when it comes to our prayer, but, but also does a phenomenal job in strengthening our relationship and our faith.
4: Right, and that is my hope through all of this, that, you know, often if we don't know where to go or we feel like we're just, you know, in a rut with the same things over and over, that it will, it will expand our love for God and our love for our community and that we will begin to experience this deepening relationship with Him as we begin to talk to Him intentionally and purposely, you know, every day.
2: I, funny, I was just looking at the calendar here and, and made note of the fact that it's December the 14th. Exactly a year ago today, I was flat on my back in a hospital being treated for cancer Mm. and had suffered something called an ileus. I won't describe it. It's a blockage. Um, As as I told my nurse, uh, it'll be about three hours from now, exactly a year ago. uh, You need to either give me some pain medication or bring me a gun. Mm. Horrifically painful experience. Right. And as we're talking, and I'm thinking back exactly a calendar year later... At the repeated answers to prayer, including on the day of the most painful day of my hospitalization, exactly a year ago today. And I think how grateful I am to serve a God who not only hears prayer, but who answers prayer Mm -hmm. and to be mindful and reminded of his faithfulness, and I think we do a good job in bringing those prayers and supplications to the Lord. I think uh, quite often, but um, the discipline to keep track of all the times that He answers prayer, the miraculous fashion in which He is there with us. Sometimes oh, yeah. we kind of give mental assent to that, but I think actually writing it down and saying, "Well, we prayed for Uncle Charlie starting on this date, and X number of days, weeks, whatever later, here's the date when God answered the prayer." This can be a wonderful resource too. The book. Is simply called Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community. That's Pray A to Z and uh, newly published by a Worthy Inspired. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, also through the uh, usual suspects like Amazon.com. Uh, it's a good read and uh, gives you some great tips. Our thanks to Amelia Rhodes, author of Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community.